My name is Daniil Hartman, and I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Today is Wednesday, May 19, 2021, and this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage project. Today's podcast, like our previous one, will deviate from our regular format, again focusing on the emerging challenges and crises of the current Gaza war. Today, as always, I'm joined by Yossi Klein Halevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem, and then by Ilana Steinhain, Director of the Hartman Faculty in North America. At the Hartman Institute, we approach the Israel conversation as we do all our conversations, from a perspective of Jewish values seeking broad and deep engagement. Our aim is to encourage a serious and respectful conversation on Israel across political lines, promoting understanding and strengthening Jewish peoplehood. Let's begin. This week, Israel has been under dual attack. The first attack is deadly, but straightforward. Rockets are falling on our cities and towns. Israel knows how to deal with that kind of attack. Our Air Force seeks out the rocket launchers in Gaza, bombs Hamas underground tunnel infrastructure, and attempts to create a new balance of deterrence. But we are far less equipped to deal with the second attack the growing international outrage at Israel's perceived use of disproportionate force in Gaza. At the very notion that Israel has a right to go to war with a far weaker opponent. Some of Israel's critics go further, condemning not only what Israel does, but what Israel is or has become. Some politicians and even comedians are now freely using the A word, apartheid, to describe the nature of the Jewish state. Many Jews are outraged, others demoralized and confused, while still others, a minority to be sure, but increasingly vocal, are joining in the attacks against Israel's legitimacy, its ability to define itself as a Jewish and democratic state. What are we to make of this assault? Why do we find ourselves so vulnerable, so unable to adequately defend ourselves? Is there an iron dome that can fend off attacks on a good name? Or does the problem go deeper? Is there some justice to the critiques against us? To what extent is the occupation making it increasingly difficult for us to convince the world that we have a case, even the right to defend ourselves against a murderous enemy targeting our civilians? In some sense, this is our first occupation war. The first war being directly linked by much of the world to the occupation. Partly that's because of the Sheikh Jarrah incident, the proposed expulsion of six Palestinian families from their homes in Jerusalem that directly preceded the fighting and has become an anti-Israel metaphor. How much then are we to blame? Or is it still possible to insist on a separation of the moral problematics of occupation and the justice of Israel's wars of self-defense? You'll see it's a heavy one again, and it's really nice to be with you. Uh, to be with you, Daniel. Let's, you know, let, let's schmooze. <laughs> um, it seems to me that it's much harder this time. Much, much harder. The, att the attacks are deeper. There's, there's something else happening. And wh why, what's your take on it? You know, well, you and I, we come from different places. Our, our intuitions are sometimes different. What do you, what do you believe is, is the cause? I think we, um, we're sharing the same intuition, which is, to my mind, pretty, pretty obvious that uh, this is a different moment in the history of this conflict. We've been through some bad moments, uh, but nothing quite like this in terms of world opinion. 
I, I think there is a long-term structural issue. And then there's something that's related to this particular moment, the convergence of factors that are born of this, this moment. Look, the long-term structural problem is that uh, we are occupying another people. And every few years, we have to fight asymmetrical wars against terrorist groups, whether it's Hamas or Hezbollah, uh, that are embedded in their civilian populations and that generate very painful images and, and heartbreaking scenes. And that combination of Israel being a long-term occupier with these periodic asymmetrical wars is devastating for our image. Now- The question, Yossi, just on this one. It's not that this is different. It was just inevitable that it would reach this. That, that's where you then factor in this moment. Because two things, it seems to me, have happened at this moment. Okay. One, one in America and one here, internally in Israel, that's placed us on a collision course. What happened in America over the last year was the transformation of Black Lives Matter and uh, intersectionality uh, into a mainstream, certainly liberal conversation. Uh, there are now assumptions that are taken for granted uh, in the culture that were still being debated uh, until last summer. And over here, <laughs> we've had the opposite uh, as, as usual. We've had, we've had the opposite direction where Israeli politics has turned more and more right-wing. And Sheikh Jarrah was an expression of, uh, of what happens when you empower the far right. And so we went into this war already guilty in the, in the minds of, of many people around the world because of Sheikh Jarrah. Sheikh Jarrah was the metaphor. So it's, it's a convergence first of all, of occupation and asymmetrical war happening at the same time, an aggravation of the occupation through Sheikh Jarrah. And then we go right to war from Sheikh Jarrah. And happening on a parallel course, the, the clash between right-wing Israel and woke America. It's, it's, this was a train wreck waiting to happen. You know, yes, I... I want to push you a little bit um, because there's as you, you really are presenting a train wreck. <laughs> it's like it's it's all these forces. It's, I don't want to call it the perfect storm. It's the it's the worst storm. But without getting into North American politics, which is not my expertise um, at all, maybe Lana afterwards could could delve in it more deeply. I, I find Black Lives Matter to be a moral advancement. I'm not talking about every political manifestation, but the more a society recognizes that there's somebody whose life did not matter to the same degree and experienced that sense of denigration, that's not, you know, putting it all under wokeness, you know, there's, there's moments when of, of moral advancement where we see a, there was a moral blindness that was there. And so is, instead of seeing it as a train wreck, is this maybe just, this is the wrong moment to be an occupier? I agree with you that Black Lives Matter 
is a is a step forward. America more deeply facing itself, facing the crime in which it was born, uh, is 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 long overdue. The problem is that it comes at a moment in America where other less, to my mind, less healthy developments in the progressive camp uh, are emerging. And I'm thinking of intersectionality. I'm thinking of a kind of, of a simplistic judgmentalness of shutting down nuanced conversation. Uh, this conflict is the ultimate uh, nuanced, complicated conversation. Okay, so that's a different, in other words, I'm really happy and proud of myself for asking you that. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I, 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 there's I, a refinement yes, which right. is coming through, that's which right. I think is what you wanted to say. Yes. That, there's, that there, there is a certain inherent complexity to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which it's harder to hold right now. That, that's, that's a slightly different argument, right? So what's, so what's happened is that, just to refine it even further, much of the discourse in America has no patience anymore for complexity. And what's happened with the rise of the hard right here, especially uh, <laughs> since the last election, is that we have lost some of our right to speak of the Israeli complexity. Uh, if, I could, if I could add another feature to the cause, um, it, it's connected to the right-wingness, but I don't think it's... It's only the right-wing move. Because frankly, um, Sheikh Jarrah could have just as much happened and worse happened under left-wing governments. Um, I don't believe moral abuseness towards rights of Palestinians is the inheritance uh, or the domain of the Likud. But I, I want to go back to Sheikh Jarrah because I think Sheikh Jarrah was actually critical in a way that's very different than the way it's being used by many of Israel's critics. Many of Israel's critics are arguing that Hamas was a response to Sheikh Jarrah and, and the Temple Mount. That this gave them legitimacy and as a result, Hamas for the first time is perceived as not engaging in a war of aggression, but in a war of legitimate self-defense. While, while I have difficulty um, uh, countering that argument, because in order to counter it, I'd have to present a fact. And I would assume that people listen to facts, because then I would have to say, well, one second, Hamas has been attacking us from the first moment we left Gaza in 2005. So I'd have to point, I'd have to, point to the fact that, that the day before Sheikh Jarrah, the day before Damascus, the, they were already bombing, and they, they've been bombing two, three bombs for weeks now. There's a cyclical bombing going on all the time. And I'd have to speak about the Hamas charter, but I know the minute I start speaking about this facts, everybody goes to sleep. You know, like that's, it's, there's a frustration. We're talking to ourselves. To ourselves, absolutely. But there is something which is not talking to ourselves. And I believe that the space that Israel wants to claim for itself is that despite the ongoing occupation, which many Israelis don't even believe is happening. And despite the ongoing lack of progress with Palestinians, Israelis believe that we have the moral high ground. And the support for Israel is intimately connected to our claim to have the moral high ground. Israel doesn't claim might equals right. Deep part of our internal narrative is, is 
that we aspire to, um, to moral excellence. And when we come to the world, that claim is part of our defense. What Sheikh Jarrah did this time, and it was just a trigger and a tipping point because it could have been many things beyond that. What Sheikh Jarrah did, Sheikh Jarrah was not what instigated the Hamas attack. Sheikh Jarrah undermined Israel's ability to claim the moral high ground. We entered into the war That's right. with a position of an abuse of power, which yeah. then translated the war, this war against Hamas is not a war against the missiles. It is a continuation of Israel's moral abuse of power against Palestinians. And it's, it's you go from Damascus to Sheikh Jarrah to, to Akipay, to, to the whole scene. And it's Gaza is now part of an occupation discourse. That's why I called it at the beginning, the first occupation war. It's not a war against a terror organization which is attacking Israel, Israeli civilians. And there is a repositioning. And I think part of what Israel has to understand is that it's not some um, overly sensitive woke culture, but there's somebody looking at you and saying, you know, you're telling me that this is different. We want to say occupation, complicated. Gaza war, uncomplicated. What Sheikh Jarrah did is it conflated the two and and then it's, it's just a symptom of the same abuse of power. Let me push you a little bit here, because I think this is a moment that is crying out for distinctions. There's no one blanket answer here. We have uh, friends around the world who desperately need to hear a moral voice from Israel. That's, that's one piece of this. At the same time, we are facing a different kind of assault than we've known. And this is assault not on our moral credibility, on our legitimacy, on our existence. That is what it means to be calling Israel an apartheid state. As soon as you invoke apartheid, you're saying this is a criminal state. We are being criminalized in parts of, uh, of Western discourse. And so I feel it's, it's really important for us to make the moral position that you're advocating and to realize who we're speaking to and who we're not speaking to anymore. We're not speaking to the people who've already made up their minds that Israel is not a legitimate country, that you can't be a Jewish state and a democratic state at the same time. And, uh, and so that, that's one part of this assault that's not going away. That's now becoming a permanent part of this generation's experience, and it will have repercussions, most of all, for diaspora Jews, not so much for Israel. We'll, we'll be okay. This is going to impact on American Jews. The other thing that I think we need to really emphasize, Daniil, in terms of distinctions, and I know you feel this way, and you've, you've, you've been saying as much, is that we have to insist on the distinctions of where Israel is right and where Israel is wrong and own 
the, the places where Israel is wrong. We need to own Sheikh Jarrah and stop the talking points and the legal niceties. And an Israeli court ruled that it's Jewish-owned property from 1948. Yes, we all know that we don't have a moral case when for entirely justifiable reasons, from my point of view, we deny Palestinians the right to reclaim properties that they lost in West Jerusalem from 1948. What we need is a freeze on all claims from 1948. Give 1948 a rest, okay? So we agree on that. But at the same time, we need to be strong and say Israel has every right, has every moral right to defend itself against Hamas. And when you say that we are uh, using disproportionate force uh, you know, after, after 10 days or more of an aerial bombardment in a very small piece of territory, and when you, and every casualty is painful and the scenes coming out of Gaza are, are heartbreaking and, I, and, I, and I'm there. But at the same time, recognize that the Israeli Air Force is functioning under extraordinary constraints. And that is something that we need to say at this time as well. And so what I'm really calling for, Danielle, is, is learning multiple languages. We need to be speaking in multiple voices simultaneously about this conflict. We need a moral voice, a contrite voice, and we also need a voice that says to our, our critics, who are damning us for defending ourselves and worse, damning us for being a Jewish state, that uh, not only do we reject your criticism, we despise your criticism. I, I want to build on what you said, Yos. And um, so first, we'll take a few minutes. So I, I'm going to take a few minutes. And since I'm the uh, interviewer, no one's going to stop me. <laughs> uh -huh. You can stop me, though. You can say, Daniil, stop it. It's too long already. But I need a few minutes. The first thing is I think your point about apartheid is very, is critical. And many of us don't, haven't connected to the insidious nature of this A word. Because by accusing Israel of apartheid, you're not rejecting occupation. It is, it's legitimate to say that Israel is discriminating. It's legitimate to say that Israel's wrong. But the minute you use the apartheid term, as you said, you're no longer criticizing what Israel's doing. You're designating Israel as an illegitimate state. And then we become, after South Africa, the only state whose moral failure undermines our right to exist. North Korea doesn't lose its right to exist. Syria under us did not lose its right to exist. Iran doesn't. You could do any amount of oppression that you want the minute apartheid is used. It no longer is a criticism of your action, but a questioning of your core legitimacy. And I think that point that you made is, is, is critical just to put on the table. And I want to go forward with that. And this is a lot to do with, as we move forward with I Engage, there's going to be more and more people who we can't talk to. And maybe that's okay. Maybe our job is to concentrate on Let's call them the troubled committed. The untroubled committed, you know, 
they're going to find you and I nauseating. <laughs> what are you? <laughs> what are you like? Oh, who are you? You're you're traitors from the beginning. Here it is. We're contorting ourselves. Like who are you? I'm not trouble. Not committed Israel. It's very simple. Kill them all. They're evil. You're good. Life's over. You know. So, but the the vast majority of our friends who we talk to, Jews and non-Jews alike, are troubled, committed. They don't want to delegitimize Israel, but they are troubled by what it is that we are doing. And it is to that group that we need to talk. And it is in that context that I want to I want I want to respond a little bit to this very to the principal critique of the Gaza war. Leaving aside the fact that we undermined our moral position doesn't mean that we don't have a moral position. And the critique of proportionality or the disproportionality is the major critique being put forth in public discourse against Israel. Either the fact that it's not a fair fight, um, as who is it, Trevor Noah? It's like you're the adult and you're your four-year-old brother. You know, you're not supposed. Don't hit your brother because he can harm you. That you have a disproportionate amount of power, and as a result, you can't use it. That's one claim, and the second claim is that there is a disproportionate amount of casualties, and therefore, by definition, Israel is morally flawed. Now, one of the core challenges to this disproport, this, this public discourse is that it almost condemns the powerful by definition. Now, what can we do? In a certain sense, you'll see you and I, we all live in the most golden era of Jewish history where all of Israel's wars are now disproportional. They're asymmetrical. We grew up when all of our wars were what? You know, it was 200 million people. We were blah, blah. Now we've reached a moment, which is, which is what we dreamed for. Yeah. I love the fact that we are fighting asymmetrical wars and that we have a disproportionate amount of power. I'm not going to apologize. Quite to the contrary. The fact that, that my enemy can't now destroy me? <laughs> oh, sorry. I, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to disarm myself so that I could fight on equal terms with Hamas? Or I'm only allowed to use the type, if they fire these types of missiles, I have to start developing missiles parallel to their missiles and only respond. That, that's insane. It's, chi it's childish. It's, it's morally childish. and politically childish. It's, it's just childish. No, the, the, every nation has to work to survive and to protect itself. And the fact that we're now powerful, I am certainly not going to apologize for that. Certainly not. It is so destructive because it sees power itself as evil. Instead of power and powerlessness as mere manifestations, they're but a means to an end. And the question is how you use them is what's critical. When you just critique by definition the powerful, then the, then the less powerful basically get a get out of jail card by, act, by definition. And the fact that you're winning, the victor is the immoral one. That is, it's childish, it's silly. And I think that is an argument that we could win. But there's another part which requires a little more nuance. And our audience, stay with me for a moment because I think this is, I think it's really important. And Yossi, I'd love to hear what you think about it. The more serious claim of proportionality or the critique of proportionality is not that Israel's powerful and they can't do harm. And it's also so silly because what, it, what Hamas can't do harm, you know, but leave that aside. The more serious critique is that when we use our force, our force is being used disproportionately 
to the force being used to attack us. And in morality of war, it is a generally accepted principle that you could use your force only in proportion to the danger that you face. That the fact that someone else started a war, if somebody else fired a gun at you, it doesn't mean that you could destroy their country. In other words, the fact that it, the war was a war of self-defense and the fact that it is therefore a just war doesn't mean that the just war shapes and goes over into how you're supposed to fight that war. You have to use your force in proportion to the danger you face and in a way that will enable you to defend yourself. But when it comes to Gaza and it comes to Hamas, Israel is at a serious conceptual difficulty, which I want our audience to understand. And I think it's really important to make this distinction. What happens when the use of disproportional force is necessary in order to achieve victory? I accept that when it comes to a symmetrical war, army against army, you have to fight and use force proportionally. But what happens when your enemy will not stop attacking you if you use proportional force? If you use force to the, in, in proportion to the danger that you face, Hamas will fire on me forever. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that I will only fire those missiles that they can knock down or to the extent that if, what is it, 10 missiles a day land, so I'll fire 10 and these are that areas. What happens when you're facing an enemy that is not looking for a political solution to the conflict, but is simply looking to disrupt your life, terrorize you, kill some of your citizens, regardless of what happens to them? In those cases, if you fight them proportionally, you use force to the proportion that they, in direct proportion to what they've directed towards you, Okay, they've killed 20, I'm only gonna kill 20 Gazans. You've destroyed this amount of infrastructure, I'm only gonna use that amount of infrastructure. They'll never stop. What happens when the only way that you could win a war is to use a disproportionate amount of force to achieve deterrence? Now, I don't know if there's any deterrence when it comes to Hamas. It turns out that there was deterrence when it comes to Hezbollah. When was the last war in, in Lebanon, Yossi, 2000? One, six, six. six. So we've now had 15 years and three wars in Gaza where Hezbollah stood silently by. So there seems to be a moment where disproportionate use of force is the only way to defend yourself. So part of the arguments that we need to make is how do we explain the unique circumstances in which disproportionate force is morally necessary because it is the only way to defend yourself instead of it being an abuse of self-defense. Now, I apologize. I know this is technical. and It's part of, of a world that I come from. But I think part of what we need to do, and this is what you invited us to, is that we have to be able to criticize Israel where it needs to be criticized. But we also have to be able to defend Israel where it needs to be defended. And the war in Gaza, much of the criticism of against, of against the war in Gaza is either simply childish, this critique against the powerful, against the powerless, which I, I think amongst the troubled committed, we can win that, that debate and amongst friends. And the more difficult one, which requires a recognition that at times there is a moral obligation 
for disproportionality. And so, yes, you want to say, and who was it, John Oliver, over and again, the fact that we have caused more casualties is a sign of the fact that we are apartheid and that we are committing war crimes. Like, maybe it is precisely the disproportionate use of force that is what is morally required in this context, instead of being evidence for, um, for war crimes. And, and there is a simplicity to the judgment that, I, that, is not, that doesn't represent the complexity of what Israel's facing. And I think part of that, and I know it's long, but part of what you, we need, I know in, in this generation of Twitter where I'm only supposed to have a hundred, I don't know how many characters, <laughs> I don't know if they extended it. I know it was long, but we need to educate our people that even if you can't convince others and you can't convince those who've, who are now delegitimizing Israel, at least we ourselves have to know that in this case, while we were wrong about certain things, in our war in Gaza, we're not wrong. Daniel, you've just modeled in a very beautiful way the sensibility that we're talking about, which is to be able to hold a moral position, a, a position of, of self-critique and of self-defense simultaneously. And the way that you held it wasn't just in what you said, but how you said it. You spoke with equal passion when you were speaking about holding Israel, holding ourselves accountable for our moral failures and holding our critics accountable for their moral failures. There was no let up in the intensity of the way that you delivered those two critiques. And that for me was so powerful because that's what we need when we talk about educating the Jewish people that's holding two languages. It's not just the words you say, it's the intonation, it's the passion. Let, let's, let's stop here for a second. <laughs> I really appreciated I'll, I'll take that. I'll take, take it. it, take it, pocket I'll take it. it. <laughs> I'll take it, thank you. Let's, let's take a short break and when we return, um, Ilana Steinhain will join us and speak from her experiences and how she sees this and how she sees this moment of crisis from an American perspective. Hi, my name is Sarah Mulhern. I'm a faculty member at the Shalom Hartman Institute, and I want to tell you about an area of our work that I care about deeply, the Created Equal Project. As a Jewish community, we aspire to ethical behavior, but too often we fail to live up to those cherished values. Instead, we mirror the same inequities and abuses of power that plague our broader society. This causes immense harm, and poses a grave threat to the moral integrity and flourishing of Jewish life. At Hartman, we work to address this challenge and to shape a Jewish community where human dignity and gender equity are the norm through Created Equal, Gender and the Ethics of Shared Leadership. In Created Equal, we take on this crucial task by first engaging rigorously with Jewish text and thought on issues of gender, ethical leadership, healthy change, and moral use of power. We then share these ideas with communal leaders through media, immersive programs, educational resources, and individual consultations. These leaders, in turn and with our ongoing support, teach and model this Torah and thereby move their communities towards alignment between their ethical aspirations and their behaviors. To learn more, check out our webpage at shalomhartman.org slash createdequal. 
Ilana, it's as always great to be with you. Um, you're, you're coming from another place. Part of the sense of the uniqueness and crisis of this moment is our hearing from, from our friends that this is different. There's, there's a feeling that the earth is moving in ways that it hasn't moved before. Do you sense that, A, in North America? And what do you experience as the reasons for that? What, what is it that you hear? So, oh man, this is heavy. Um, I, I actually want to start by just uh, picking up on the PowerPoint. Because I think that in American discourse right now, people are very distrustful of power. And also there's, um, there's an exclusivity to it. So you can either be powerful or vulnerable, but you can't be both at the same time. And so your identity is either as powerful or as vulnerable. And this is something that we've been talking about with American Jews at Hartman for the last several years, right? What does it mean to feel yourself as American Jews as both powerful and vulnerable and to buck that trend? And I think what we're seeing here in a Trump and post-Trump world of polarization, where you're all in or you're all against, and the focus has been rightfully and, and smartly on civil rights in America in these last few years, that Israel is powerful and therefore it's distrusted. And to me, what that means is, you know, you hear everything from, we just don't believe you when you say that that apartment building in Gaza was housing Hamas headquarters. We just don't believe you because you're the powerful one. Or we believe you, but because you're powerful, you need to take more risks to your people and not use disproportionality, even if you think that's what's gonna let you win. But the other thing I'll say is that the rhetoric of bravado of we're going to bomb them to hell and we're going to bomb them in a way that they'll never come back from. It doesn't help. Doesn't uh, I got to be honest. It doesn't help. Or the response of when a reporter asks someone who's representing Sahal, but the Palestinians don't have Iron Dome and his response is, of course they have Iron Dome. Don't shoot at us. That's the wrong response. The response should be every civilian casualty is terrible. And we wish we didn't have to do this. And we do this in the best way we can. There's a real zero sum that people just revert into their tribal instincts. And it, it continues the conversation of you're just enemies and you don't actually care about the humanity of the other. So I'm seeing all of that as an American Jew. And I'm saying, IDF, clean up your Twitter feed. And their Twitter feed now is, let us show you how when there are civilians there, we try to make sure that not to bomb. That's very different rhetoric than we're going to bomb Hamas to hell so that they never come back at us. I understand why that's needed. You're trying to tell your people, we're going to save you and we're going to keep you safe. But the way that sounds on ears that are distrustful of power is, we're going to bomb civilians. <laughs> it doesn't sound like we're going to beat Hamas. It sounds like we're going to bomb civilians. And you're talking to somebody 
as I said last week, my first and primary allegiances are with Israel, but I know how it sounds mm -hmm. and I know how it looks. And I think that's really important. Like the people who people are listening to now in America, in American Jewry, are people who are talking about shared society and coexistence, which by the way, may sound terrible to you. <laughs> what do you mean shared society coexistence? These people are lobbing 3000 rockets at us, right? I get it, but that's that's the difference. It, it's the distrust of power and the polarization. It's not about winning. It's actually about asking the question, right? Like Danielle, it was interesting to me that you said, we need to explain to people that we need disproportionality to win. I think for liberal American Jews, it's we need to talk about whether we need disproportionality to win. Meaning that needs to be a question mark that comes out of this. And that, that's what I see and I feel and I hear. And I'll just say one more thing, which is we had a beautiful learning Shavuot night in our home. And we had a, it was a pluralistic group, diverse, people have different opinions, people have different perspectives. Do you support the letter that rabbinical students wrote about American Jews taking responsibility in Gaza? Are you against that letter? Do you think it's actually really not showing empathy to your Jewish family like what is that and i chose to speak about code switching i chose to speak about how you speak differently when you're speaking to different groups that you're a part of and it's like the whole room sort of felt like yeah that really you're like really capturing we we talk to our israeli family one way we're talking to the media another way we're talking to our non-jewish colleagues another way it, it's it's not there are no um, periods at the end of the sentences. It's a lot of question marks. It's a lot of question marks. Ilana, I really appreciate it. I want to go to uh, something that you spoke about. You said you want to make the distinction between claiming that we need disproportionality in order to win to talking about whether we need disproportionality in order to win. And I appreciate that very much. But do you think that this, the gap in reality between Israelis and North American Jews and the fact that, see, both of us are very powerful, both of us in our own ways, but we have overt power. But we, we know that without that power, we'd be dead. We've seen it. It is so, is that gap you see, we have, I kind of want to ask you, is that a gap we can overcome? Because we have to overcome it. And what you're saying is, if, if you want to overcome it, and this goes back to some of the things that Yossi and I spoke beforehand, there has to be a very strong moral sensibility, moral discourse, which accompanies your world of power. See, because strangely enough, that army spokesperson, he's right. Of course he's right. But, 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 but that's not a moral discourse. But, but that's not a moral that's discourse. Not, that's just, that was a, that's an arrogant, you know. Uh, it's it's a zinger. Don't give me a zinger. It's harming us when power gives us the sense that we don't need to have moral discourse. I think that, that the moral discourse that we're trying to model here is essential. Uh, it is appropriate for civilian Israel. How much 
of a moral discourse. Uh, the army is really capable of any army in the middle of a war. Let's get real. Uh, the army spokesperson's unit, you know, they're, they're 19 year old kids. Uh, look, you know, I, I remember during, uh, I think it was the 2013 Gaza war and an army spokesperson said, well, you know, we're just going to have to go into Gaza every few years and mow the grass, which is an Israeli expression. You know, you're going to have to control yep. the, the terrorism. Yep. And Israelis took that for granted. That's just an expression. That's how an army speaks. It's how an army speaks to itself. It's how an army speaks to its enemies. And people abroad, American Jews, friends of mine, were scandalized. You know, how do you speak that, that way? You're losing your soul. So I think we need some, some balance here. You know, it is an army. It is a war. Wars are about killing people. That's, that's what wars and armies do. And at the same time, we need to figure out what is a credible moral discourse that we can expect Israel as a society uh, under permanent siege to hold and still hold Israel to, to that higher standard. I want to make something clear, and this is not about bona fides, okay? This is not about like right-wing or Zionist bona fides. I think that what's going on in Gaza, if I'm told this is what we need to do and we're doing it very carefully, I give Israel the benefit of the doubt because that's who I am, that's my connection, that's my relationship. But we cannot ignore the fact that all discourse, no matter where it happens, is public. So there's no such thing as the discourse of an army to its people and then a discourse of a civilians. There's no such thing. It's online. Everybody sees it all the time. So I think the combination of like social media and how public these conversations are and the fact that there is this deep mistrust and distrust of power means that the moral discourse has to be front and center and I'm going to give an asterisk, that doesn't mean that people aren't going to hate on Israel anyway. Because you know what? There is such a thing as just not liking Jews. And there is such a thing as just not liking that there's a Jewish state and that Jews have power. And there is discomfort with power. But that doesn't absolve us of having that moral discourse. It just doesn't. You know, what we said before and is that there are some people we're not going to talk to but for the people who we are going to talk to and need to talk to. Your distinctions and the, the force of your words are critical. And because how did we start this podcast? We started this podcast by saying things are different. It's not working the way it used to work. So we can either hit our heads against the wall and say, oh, why can't we talk about this the way we talked about this 10 years ago? The reality is, is that we can't. And the reality is, is that strategically we don't want to. And the reality is, is we want to make sure that both the world and the Jewish people are able to feel connected to Israel, sometimes critical, sometimes not, but are able to remain connected. And to do so, we need to find a different way to talk about power and to integrate moral discourse with it, to use Ilana's statement. Conversations about power shouldn't have periods. <laughs> they, should, they should invite a conversation and, um, and more room. Yossi and Ilana, it's, it's a pleasure. Uh, for heaven's sake, it's a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Spiekelman and edited by Tali Cohen, and music is provided by SoCal. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. 
We want to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are available. Shalom, everyone. And uh, I hope our next podcast could talk about where do we go from here because the war will be over. Amen. I